God is good all the time. Welcome to everybody that joins us online every week and our CM campus. Many people in our culture know something of Jesus historically. Even in secular America, Jesus, Christmas, the cross, Easter still get a lot of work. People may think Santa and Frosty the snowman were in the manger scene. They may think chocolate bunnies were hopping around the empty tomb area, but they know something. They may have no idea what that cross around their neck truly represents, or where Jesus actually lived, or that baby Jesus and Jesus on the cross are the same guy, but they know something. After all, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Churches are everywhere, and despite all attempts to cancel it, there's really still plenty of Christianity left in America. Even if people know nothing else, they know something of the concept of prayer, that Jesus performed miracles, that someone's paying a whole lot of money in an ad campaign to try to convince them that he gets us. They know those things. Jesus of Nazareth may be the most recognizable face in the world, despite the fact we have no idea what he looked like. Many people have absolutely no idea where Nazareth was located by the looks of that, perhaps somewhere in England. The fact that Jesus looks shockingly European or that a person of Jewish descent resembles Barry Gibb in the younger years seems problematic to a precious few. Jesus is iconic, countercultural, quotable. In one way or the other, it always seems to keep Jesus in the news. Always. Most people know that we get information about Jesus from the Bible. And I would guess that apart from Christmas and Holy Week, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the most familiar part of the Bible. If you know anything about Christianity, you know something of that. But there's a big difference between knowing something about Jesus and knowing Jesus. I know a lot of people actually know a lot about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. I know other people that don't know that much about Jesus yet, but they do know Jesus. Paul's letter to the Colossians addressed a church entertaining some ill-informed and misguided beliefs about Jesus. They had the right stuff, but they added a bunch of other things to it. Sort of like somebody trying to kick field goals in a baseball game. <laughs> Keep in mind that people in the mid-first century did not have a formal New Testament. And navigating Christianity exclusively using the Old Testament is challenging at best. Self-proclaimed teachers and preachers were purporting all kinds of stuff. And as a result, belief in Colossae took on an ecclesiastical accent of its own. And that's where Paul came in. The book of Colossians is written to herd the cats. That's what he's doing. He's trying to convey core teachings concerning the sufficiency of Christ. And it kind of practically demonstrates how the early church began to move toward orthodoxy or proper belief about Jesus. You need to understand, without Jesus, we don't have Christianity. But without Paul, we don't have the kind of Christianity that we know. Paul's major in this. Colossians was probably written or dictated by Paul sometime in 
the early 60s AD, maybe mid, by the time of this writing, Colasse was in economic and cultural decline. Maybe some of you grew up in small town America. And if you're my age, perhaps when you drive through the small town you grew up in, it's clear that it's hit hard times. Empty main streets and decaying storefronts. That's kind of what you had in Colasse. It was a, a town that passed its peak. It was in decline economically and culturally. Paul didn't plant the church there. He, he never visited it. It was planted by Epaphras, and it was from him that Paul learned about the church and its unique theological virus. Paul became convinced that this, if this theological disease wasn't diagnosed and treated, it would be the ruin of the Colossian church. What was the virus? It's often called the Colossian heresy. Clearly had to do with false teaching about Jesus, but we really don't know the details of it. Because rather than talk about the virus, Paul spends his time in Colossians telling us about the cure. What is the cure? Jesus. Jesus is a cure. How do we know about Jesus? From the Bible. From the Bible. So we're going to review, then we're going to get started. We've been talking about claims that Paul made about Jesus. And remember, he's trying to reel in belief. People think they need things in addition to Jesus. He's reeling it in. So let's take a look at these six things real quick. First of all, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. We understand God in three persons. Jesus is one of them. Number two, Jesus was a catalyst of creation. One of my favorite lines is, he was and is and is to come. That's good stuff there. Jesus is supreme over creation. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Number four, Jesus is the head and the church is his body. So here's the deal. If Jesus isn't the head of it, it isn't the church, it doesn't matter if it has a steeple or not. Number five, Jesus reconciles us with God, makes us right with God. It's the work of Christ and not the law or special knowledge that squares us up with God. The only way to get square with God is through Christ and Christ alone. And then number six, Jesus makes us holy, set apart for a special purpose and blameless. When God looks at us, he does not see the foolish soul in need of rescue. He sees our perfect rescuer. So we're going to continue our journey by adding four additional claims tonight. So if you deep in your heart feel like a really good message is where you get to take lots of notes, this could be the best sermon you've ever heard. Here we go. Number seven, Jesus invites us to walk with him. Verse six, and now just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. A teacher like Paul spent most of his life traveling. He logged thousands of ministry miles by any estimate. Disciples traveled with him. Paul taught them as they went. He deployed them. He kind of left them behind to start new faith communities. Really, when you think about Paul's missionary journeys, he was a mobile seminary. 
Those wishing to learn from him had to physically join him on the journey. Every now and then you could kind of nail his fence to the floor and, and he would stay somewhere a while like he did in Corinth. But for the most part, if you wanted to be mentored by Paul, you're gonna have to walk about 10 or 20 miles a day. That's just how it played. It's really the same for those of us who wish to follow Jesus. If we wanna learn from Jesus, we got to walk with him. Christianity is not just knowing something about Jesus. It's not even just meeting Jesus. It's not even getting baptized. It's, it's choosing to walk with him every single day of our life. The hymn writer had it right, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And brilliantly enough, they set the whole thing to a waltz. You just kind of feel like you're fox trotting with Jesus. Yeah. When Melissa and I were married in 1983, we made a decision to walk through life together. A lot of people get married, but staying married 40 years through its ups and downs and highs and lows is something else entirely. We've experienced great joy. We've experienced great pain and disappointment, but we've stayed in it. We've stayed at it, and without a doubt, we're at the best place that we've ever been. We have both been changed because we chose to walk together. Because we chose to share life's journey with one another, we have ended up in a different place than we ever would have ended up had we chosen to walk alone or with someone else. This is what we have to do with Jesus. Not just receive him as Lord and Savior, but we've got to learn to walk with him, talk with him, abide with him. Asking Jesus to come into our lives is the wedding. Baptism is the reception. Walking with Jesus is the marriage. <laughs> Claim number eight, Jesus roots us. He roots us. Verse 7, let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. In Greek, rootedness is a completed action. It's not rooting, it's rooted. Paul speaks of a tree that is firmly rooted. When we lived in the woods, or we live in the woods, and one of the things that amazed me when we moved out into the woods is that trees and parts of trees are constantly falling. You don't really realize that when you live in town because you got like five trees and they were probably planted when the subdivision was built in 2006, so they're not even old trees. You live in a woods, those trees have been there a long time and hunks of them are almost perpetually falling. I'm equally amazed that all the fierce storms that rip through our woods don't knock all of the trees down. I just can't believe that they managed to stand up. Now, some varieties of trees are just granite strong, and they kind of hunker down and brace themselves against the wind. Others are just so limber, they sort of dance their way through every storm. What all standing trees have in common is a strong root system. They got a strong root system their roots anchor them during the storm 
As we learn to pray and worship and give and serve and study the word and witness, we are growing root systems. They both nourish our souls and they anchor us during the storms. And then we reach a point where we are not just owners of roots, but we do reach a point where we are rooted. And, and I would call that just Christian maturity. It's when we are rooted in our faith. You say, well, how do you know? When you've been through lots of stuff, and when you see a lot of other trees fell down all around you and you're still standing, and stuff that seems to take other people completely out of play doesn't take you out of play, you're rooted. The immediate necessity of any new Christian is to get firmly rooted and to build their lives upon Christ. A lot of new Christians are not rooted yet. And then storms hit, and it takes them out of play. We understand that. But a lot of people who have been Christians for decades aren't rooted either. They may have some roots, but they're not rooted. He says, then your faith will grow strong in the truth. In the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Now, unlike the word for rooted, this sentence is comprised of in-process words. Everything here is in process. Paul is saying that those who are rooted are being built up, established, and vigorous. So if you are rooted, then you are in the process of being these things. It's once we are firmly rooted in Christ that our faith begins to grow in the truth. And the tangible fruit of a healthy relationship with Christ is a palpable spirit of thanksgiving. Isn't that something? Thanksgiving's my favorite holiday. I am so glad we have Halloween out of the way. No offense, but I hate it. <laughs> but Thanksgiving, I love it. I love Thanksgiving. It seems like the one American holiday they haven't figured out how to ruin. No one gives gifts at Thanksgiving. No one dresses up like pilgrims. No one has to buy a new outfit for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is gratitude and family and turkey and football and every other wonderful thing. It's, Thanksgiving's not only a holiday, it's, it's a virtue. It's a virtue. It's the antidote to entitlement. You show me somebody that's entitled, I'll show you somebody that's not thankful. It's the antidote to selfishness. You show me somebody that's selfish, I'll show you somebody that's not thankful. It's the antidote to pride. You somebody, show me somebody that's full of pride, I'll show you somebody that's not thankful. Thanksgiving is a choice to focus on the blessings right in front of you rather than lament about all the things you think you should have, but you don't. Being thankful for what we have not only keeps us in right relationship with God and right relationship with people, it provides empirical evidence of a faith that is deeply rooted in Christ. So you may well ask me, are you saying that if I am not a thankful person, that I am not properly rooted in my faith? No, that's not what I'm saying. That's what Paul is saying. <laughs> in the early 2000s, 
uh, Melissa and I made a decision. We'd been at Christ Church for four or five years, and it was the time when Methodists move. Methodists sort of moved pastors every three to five years, and we made a decision to kind of step out of the normal rotation, and we wanted to stay. And we wanted to grow with Christ Church. We wanted to make our lives here with y'all. I didn't want to be uh, transient my whole life. I didn't want to move every three years. I, <laughs> I wanted to live my life with you all. I wanted to baptize babies and confirm them, lead them to Christ, grow them in faith, officiate their weddings and baptize their babies. That's really what I wanted to do. I want to make my life with you all. I decided not to run the Methodist template and be a three to five year and you're out pastor. I wanted to invest in the collective mission of Christ Church. I wanted to grow roots in this region and I wanted to grow roots here with you. We wanted to raise our family here. We wanted to be able to call somewhere home. Now, that is tricky because we were in a system that really wasn't generally in favor of that. And then the church kind of has to go along with it as well. But to our delight, the church wanted to keep us. And after some discussion with our pastor parish relations committee and administrative council, the church made a very bold and somewhat controversial move at the time. They sold their parsonage in which we lived, and they gave us a housing allowance to purchase our own home. That simple act established an investment in our ministry here by the congregation. It rooted us here. And I will forever be thankful to those of you who made that decision back then. Pastor's Appreciation Month ended yesterday, and I'm glad it's over because people bought me a lot of Dairy Queen blizzards. And... <laughs> and I'm going to have to get a new shtick. I'll tell you what, man. I barely lived through Pastor's Appreciation Month. But I can assure you that no pastor more appreciates their congregation than I appreciate you all. Every single day of my life, I appreciate every single one of you. What has happened is a result of being rooted, abiding with Christ, and abiding with one another and Doing it in a spirit of thanksgiving? Well, Christ Church has not only grown, but we are still growing. We didn't just build, but we are still building. We are not just filled, but we are overflowing. As I look at what God has done here over the past two and a half decades, I'm humbled and awed. People ask me, did you grow Christ Church? I said, nobody can grow a church but God. But I have had the honor of growing with Christ Church. The ministry of this church did not grow from 200 to over 3,500 over 25 years by executing a master plan. I'm just not that smart. We just relentlessly pursued a mission of connecting people with Jesus and walking with Jesus, and we've just sort of gone where it took us. And it's brought us here. And I'm really thankful. Claim number nine. Jesus unlocks all God has for us. 
Verse 8, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high sound and nonsense. It comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you are also are complete through your union with Christ, who is head over every ruler and authority. In the first century Greco-Roman world, the ethos was saturated by competing philosophical schools. You had the Epicureans, you had the Stoics, the list just goes on and on. Public debate around the newest and most dynamic ideas was always in fashion among the literate and the enfranchised. Giving new and emerging voices a hearing was a vital part of life for the intelligentsia of that day. It's kind of like Public debate, hearing new ideas, was sort of like cable for ancient, rich, smart people. Paul's unapologetically stating that the simple message of Jesus contains more wisdom and truth than all the schools of philosophy combined. He's saying don't ruin something as perfectly powerful as faith in God by being seduced by something as utterly feeble as human philosophy. The Greek really says, beware lest any man carry you off as a captive. The Greeks really said, watch it that you don't get your faith kidnapped by people spouting high sounded nonsense. The warning is not to allow ourselves to become spiritually seduced by false teaching. Who is vulnerable? People who are not rooted. If you're rooted, you're fine. Oh, you may get in a bad mood every now and then, but you're fine. It's the people who aren't rooted that Paul is warning. You see, a lot of times, people who are claiming to be Christians but aren't rooted they buy in to the false teaching. You say, well, why? Because it better aligns with their experience, with their education, or their politics. But you see, we must allow the Bible to form our worldviews. We can't begin with our worldview and try to shove the Bible into it. Many people today have abandoned traditional and orthodox Christianity. They just abandoned it. They were on the right trail, and now they're on the wrong trail. They were headed in a very good direction, and now they're simply not. And it's not going to end well for them. It just isn't. They've allowed themselves to become convinced by false teachers that the Bible doesn't say what it clearly says, and are sure. They are absolutely sure that we would feel the same if we were only as enlightened as they. Sometimes I ask myself, why, why do people pivot? Why do people pivot out of traditional Christianity? And I think the answer from my antidotal observation is because the Bible no longer fit their social or cultural narrative. It just didn't fit it. They wouldn't change to become obedient to God, so they have attempted to change God to be obedient to them. 
Over the years, I've seen the faith of many unrooted Christian people lost to human philosophy and partisan politics and false teaching and unsound theology. It's a direct result of a failure of professing Christians to get rooted in Christ. And that is the fault of the church. We cannot allow people to sit in our pews week after week and year after year and not seriously challenge them to become disciples of Jesus Christ. I've been doing this too long to play it safe. I've been doing this too long to play it safe. I am willing to risk people leaving to challenge them to become followers of Jesus. You're just not going to be able to come to church every week here, no matter how you're living or what you're doing, and leave feeling better about yourself with a little moral therapeutic deism. It's just not what I'm selling. Sometimes we don't need to feel good about the sin in our lives. And we need to repent of the sin in our lives. And we need to allow God to do his work with us. You see, we must open our lives to the work of Christ. And you say, well, how do we know what the work of Christ is? Guys, it's not the Jesus on television. I mean, I'm really serious about that. You know, 20 years ago, everybody thought Jesus looked like Jim Caviezel. You know, he was in the passion of the Christ. Now people are confused because Jesus played a prophet in the Jesus revolution. How did that happen? Guys, Jesus isn't an actor. Jesus isn't a Hollywood show. Jesus isn't an ad campaign. Jesus isn't a cultural narrative. We must be obedient to the Jesus who is in the Bible. How can people be deceived? Because they have no idea what's in the Bible. And when they don't like it, they try to twist it and change it, and they're open to the first false teacher they see who tells them what they want to hear. I have no interest in telling you what you want to hear. I have great interest in telling you what the Bible actually says. So how do we stay on the trail that leads to eternal life, right? How do we stay on the trail? Once you get on the trail, how do you stay on the trail? We make Jesus our trail guide. That's it. We just make Jesus our trail guide. If we're walking with him in obedience to the word, we can always be assured that we're going the right direction. We might call this the journey into a mathematical full union with God. If things are completely in union, they completely share each other's properties. That should be our goal with Christ, that we would be in full union with him. The end game of pursuing this full union is having our bodies, our minds, our wills, and our emotions, and our spirits completely aligned with God's will, abiding in Christ, and marinated in God's presence. Walking with Jesus not only takes us where we need to go, it's also the key that opens to everything that God has for us. You're never going to experience the good stuff of Christianity until you get rooted in your faith and until you make a commitment to walk in with Jesus. Until you decide 
that the Bible's the word of God. And when you and the Bible disagree, it's you that's wrong, not the Bible. Until you decide you're going to live in obedience to Christ, your entire life is going to be one of constant crises. I don't have a whole lot of crises in my life because I made one central decision. I am going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to follow the Jesus to whom the Bible testifies. Once you make that decision, you'd be shocked at how few others you need to make additionally. As a kid, at the end of church, they used to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. If not enough came, people came forward, they could sing that thing two to 300 verses. <laughs> but you know what? I have decided to follow Jesus. I know many of you have decided to follow Jesus, and until you make that decision, you're never going to move into the mature Christian life. That's the key. Opens everything God has for us, every great thing. Claim number 10, and finally, Jesus resurrects us. I like that. Anybody here stand in need of resurrection? You know, he resurrects us. Verse 12, we are buried with Christ in baptism and raised to new life because we trusted in the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. Do you know, did you know I can dunk you in water? I even have the authority to make a church member of you, but only Jesus can save you and only Jesus can wash away your sin and only Jesus can resurrect you. I can pronounce you dead in the water, but only Jesus can resurrect you to new life. We must place our trust in the resurrecting power of God. Jesus will never ask us to do anything he's not empowered us to do. He will never ask us to be anything. He's not empowered us to be. He'll never ask us to go anywhere. He has not empowered us to go. This means that Jesus will never ask us to live a life he has not empowered us to live. You know where a lot of false theology and a lot of false teaching begins? It begins at the very point that people lose confidence that Jesus can actually change folks. And if you don't believe Jesus can change people, all of a sudden, everybody's just fine the way they are. But we Orthodox Christians, we believe Jesus can change people. And many of us offer testimony because he changed us. We believe Jesus can resurrect. We believe that Jesus can save. We believe that Jesus can heal. We believe that Jesus can forgive. We believe that Jesus can restore. We believe Jesus does those kind of things. And if Jesus asks us to live in a certain way, we believe he has given us the power to live that way. You see, we don't need more man-made religion. And I'm gonna say this as an author, we don't need a new book. We don't need slightly baptized Freudian superegos. We don't need a new Christian brain app. We don't need a Christian celebrity to tell us how to be happy or more famous. And heaven knows we don't need any more lofty philosophical constructs. We don't need any of those things at all. None of them. Christ Church, let's put the false teachers of this fallen world on notice 
you can keep your high-sounding nonsense because all we need is Jesus. Jesus.